Hi there, folks. I am Chris. My name is Tyler. And uh, we are doing a tentatively titled podcast thing where we will be reviewing the movie Pontypool. Now, in this podcast, the idea is that we're going to be reviewing lots of movies. Um, the first movie that we've decided to watch is a horror movie called Pontypool. Um, the general idea for this podcast, which kind of goes against its own nature, is that we're going to do something without any format. Um, most film review shows tend to have a gimmick or something that you know that they rely on to build their structure, and we decided, fuck that. We're not going to do that. We're just going to literally watch a movie. Maybe it's a movie we've seen. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it's not a movie. Maybe we play a video game or watch a TV show. Who knows? But we're going to, for right now anyway, watch a movie. And then as soon as the movie's over, turn on the microphone, talk about the movie, give it a review, talk about how we feel, and whatever else comes with it. Analysis, raise some questions, uh, discussion. It'll be nice. So, as we said, today we watched Pontypool. Um, this movie was released in 2008. It is a pseudo-zombie horror movie. Um, it was definitely something. Um, to briefly summarize, basically what happens is um, the main character is a radio host. He goes in for his morning radio show. Um, and essentially all hell breaks loose. There immediately start coming reports of just all kinds of crap. Crazy people barreling over one another. Just your standard zombie fare. Um, spoilers, by the way. It's kind of, it'll kind of be a running thing uh, as we do these. That uh, uh, spoilers... Are going to be released for right. for everything that we can uh, that we can possibly uh, think of reviewing. We we are not going to uh, to try and not going to hold back on on that. Account. Yeah, uh, everything that I just described happened in probably the first ten minutes. But moving on forward, you can expect some spoilers for sure. Um, so that's the idea, and uh, I gotta ask Chris, wh- how did you feel about the movie? This is your second viewing of the film, my first second and a half. Okay, I did watch half of it and fall asleep, um, which is not a thing about the movie. Uh, it was just happened to be three a.m. Perfect when I was watching it. But yes, uh, second real time viewing the movie. Um, I'm a big fan of this. Uh, it's it's still been kind of fresh on my mind because I watched it uh, for the first time about a week or a week and a half ago, and um, it's possibly one of my favorite examples of shooting something creatively on a shoestring budget. It uh, it's. Amazingly well shot. I've I've been counting. Uh, there are only four sets. You can call them sets in the movie, and uh, most of them were all shot in the same place, uh, on location. So, it's uh, it's done very creatively. You uh, you wouldn't guess that it uh, 
that it is lacking in budget uh, unless unless you really looked at it. Um, it was released uh, IFC, so it is a, it is an independent movie. Um, I did some research on the background. It's uh, directed by Bruce McDonald, written by uh, Tony Burgess, um, and it was adapted by Tony Burgess uh, off of his novel uh, Pontypool Changes Everything, which I'm going to have to pick up and read very soon. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm a fan. <laughs> I've uh, I've I've. Uh, Picked up at least at least one new favorite actor from this. Okay, uh, I've got to say I felt like the first part of the movie. I would say the first half, the first at least the first at least hour was quite strong. I feel like the the build up was quite intense, quite well done. Um, I had really no complaints. Uh, I thought it was going to be very very professionally done. Um, and then I gotta say, in my opinion, in the last half hour or so, it really started to fall apart. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Um, there was definitely a lot of things that took me out of it. Um, there was a few instances of some extremely, extremely poor writing, in my opinion. Only really in the last bit, but, um... It definitely took me out of it a little bit. I will say that I overall enjoyed the experience of the film, um, but once I felt like the more was revealed about what was going on, the less I cared about it, okay. if that makes sense. Um, so I, why, don't, why don't we go over exactly what happens in the film, like the real body of, of you know... What what is going on in this town and these people? Okay, and uh, just uh, just for listeners' benefit, uh, once again, this is where we're going to get into heavy spoiler territory. We will absolutely be destroying this movie for you if you haven't already seen it. So it has a shining recommendation for me. Go watch it. I definitely uh, think it's worth a watch too. Watch it now. It's on Netflix as of as of right now, and it has been forever. When I very first got my Netflix account, it went into my list, and I only recently just watched it. And it's uh, you know, it, it it's been on there forever. It doesn't look like it's going anywhere. Um, <laughs> of course, that's impossible to determine with Netflix. But go watch it. Uh, if you don't, this is going to ruin everything. <laughs> Or maybe you don't care. Um, yeah, I mean that's possible, and that's fine. Um, but the, this is this is uh, this is kind of the point of no return. Uh, yep. All right. So, just to summarize, we've got a radio host. We've got a lovable um, supporting actor. I'll say um, who is the producer. Uh, her name is Sydney, um, and then we have another supporting actor. Um, the character's name is Laurel Ann. She is a young, attractive, um, I guess she manages the technical side of the radio show. It would seem that way. She's also an Afghanistan veteran, um, as it is stated in the film. Now, I found that that was implied she had done work 
in Afghanistan. We never figured out if she was actually military or not. Never oh, specifically. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well. Yeah. It it's implied in one conversation heavily, but uh, it's just about what uh, what she had seen while she was over there. It's it's possible she could have been uh, Peace Corps. Well, whatever. <laughs> so, moving right along, right off the bat, uh, zombie shit starts happening really quickly. Just starts, you know, first five minutes of this radio broadcast, uh, it all goes to hell. The weatherman starts talking about masses of bodies destroying cars and invading buildings and eating each other, cannibalizing (laughs) people, an explosion of people. Um, Right off the bat, you know, they start to think it's a prank. They go to a singing group called Lawrence and the Arabians, which is a Interesting. <laughs> Fantastically uh, a teeny bit on the nose racist. <laughs> it is, yes, quite racist. There, there is there is a man in brown face dressed as Osama bin Laden. Yes. That's, uh, that's yeah. a thing. I believe he finishes his song with an or something to that effect. firing a fake A fake machine gun. Uzi. Yeah. So that's interesting. Right after that happens... They tell us uh, it, it is approximately 10.05 a.m. at that time. They tell us that they've got 75 people dead in the town. Right after that, the BBC World Service calls in. Um, this is the first real contact they have with the outside world. Um, the guy from the BBC is kind of a dick. Um, and then they move right along. They find out they're in a quarantine. Um, then... It all really starts to go to hell. We kind of have a breather moment, and then they start listing off obituaries, which is extremely over the top, and might have been the first thing that takes me out of it a little bit. It was really, yeah, it was pretty hilarious. I I have I have so much to say about the obituary. Go ahead. This is your forum. Okay. Okay. Unless well, you want me to continue, and you want to, I think I think we should probably uh, okay, continue and get to the finer points of okay. things after. Gotcha. All right. So after the obituaries, we've got Laurel Ann, the intern slash tech girl, um, starts showing obvious signs. She basically the zombies seem to be mimicking sounds that they're hearing. There's a tea kettle in the studio, and. Uh, What's her name? Sydney takes the tea kettle off of the stove, and Laurel Ann begins mimicking the tea kettle, which is quite disturbing. Um, we get an explanation from... Oh, so I guess the there is a doctor who seems to be an expert on all this somehow. Well, he, he was, uh, he was uh, the first major... Uh, the first major attack uh the when the uh weather guy starts talking about uh an explosion of people trying to get into a doctor's office it's his doctor's office right um so he's just been observing this all day while he tried to get to the radio station yeah so somehow uh, inexplicably he makes it from his office to the radio station crawls in through the window um and he basically explains everything about the zombies, uh, explains that it's based in sound, that there are infections in certain words, 
um, that people are saying, and that's what is causing the the people to become infected and turn into essentially mindless zombies. Um, and you know, it's it's implied that they're are certain words like terms of endearment or stuff like that that carry the infection. Um, we see them go into the sound booth um, away from Laurelan, who is obviously very far gone at this point. And um, he says something to the effect of, she'll lose track of us if she can't hear us, uh, which does not turn out to be the case. No, it does. Okay. Well, because I, I thought something about lip reading. Uh, it was brought up as a question, but... Didn't but turn they, out. Okay. They, they didn't... They, they were bringing it up because they didn't know if they could uh, read lips. So, um, yeah, from there, we see Laurel Ann begin thrusting herself at the glass. Um, she then seems to have a gory, visceral uh, puking fit into the glass of the studio door. Think think, uh, think, exorcist, less pea soup, more minestrone. Yeah, mixed with the music video for Eminem's Just Lose It. Um, yes, and uh, so she collapses is seemingly dead, but also still breathing somehow. Never explained on that. Um, The doctor gets infected. Uh, He sacrifices himself into the horde of zombies. They walk out. One of the little girls from Lawrence and the Arabians attacks them. They kill her. Um, Sydney starts to get infected. They cure her by confusing her. Uh, or the the main character cures her by confusing her, and um, then shit just gets really weird. Uh, there's there's it basically seems like the French Canadian army is bombing the entire city and killing everyone outside. Um, then the movie seems to end with a bomb being dropped on the studio. Uh, is there anything that I missed? Um. Uh, other than the uh, strange non sequitur last scene, um, I I can't really think of anything. Um. So do you, do you just uh, do you want to go ahead and uh, go into analysis? Yes, analysis. Straight into analysis. I'll um. You kick it off. Yeah, I'll start and. Yeah. Go go right ahead. Alrighty. Um. So I, I have to uh, I have to reveal some some alliances here. I am a big fan of the uh, of the zombie movie genre. Um, what wouldn't say that that I have uh, wouldn't say that I've seen all or even a majority of of most fine zombie cinema. Uh, Especially with the boom and mediocre uh, stuff that's been pushed out in the last ten years. Oh so, yeah, very mediocre. Um, <laughs> uh, but but you know I, I I know the classics. I like them. You know uh, some of Romero's less uh, um, campy. Oh, yeah, I'll say. And even some of the the more campy was it a. Uh, 
was oh man, which one was it? Um, was it Day of the Dead or Dawn of the Dead, or a different one where they were in the mall? Uh, I don't know. Is this thinking too far back. Um, well, I I I, was... I know there was a video game like that, Dead Rising. <laughs> that that's true. Um, I, I I while I am drawing a blank here. On the uh, on which one it is. So twenty eight days later, that was a good one. Twenty eight days later is one of my favorites, and there are actually some uh, some connections I've found between Pontypool and Twenty Eight Days Later. Really? Um, well, one thematic one. Um, I feel like they're both great zombie movies because they take a risk with their zombie lore uh how how their uh zombies come to come to be zombies how they explain the zombies yeah um 28 days later i always said it was it was a great zombie movie for the action if you ignore the central premise that people are actually getting infected with the emotion rage sure cuz that took me out of it a little bit and this one um, the whole premise is done with such satire and uh, and and humor that I can. Um, this movie that we just watched, yes. You feel like the premise was humorous? Yes, I, I I think I think if I had to describe this to anyone, if I had to, which I do, um, if I had to give it a. Uh, if I had to say, if you like X, Y, and Z, watch this. I would say, if you like creative horror movies, if you like low budgets, if you like... Who doesn't? Yeah, I mean, if you like dark, pitch black humor, you will really like this movie. Because, I mean, you, you, uh, you, you, were, you were right there with me. There were several moments where you laughed. Yeah. Audibly. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, I think it was intentional. The uh, from everything I can tell, the the writer Tony Burgess, um, a lot of his writing tends to uh, tends to skew that way. Um, not as a mixture of comedy and horror that you would say get in Shaun of the Dead or something. Which right. Is well, a, that's but, com- primary comedy. Exactly. Secondary it's, horror. It's a it's a comedy. Uh, satirizing horror cues. Whereas this is a horror movie that has some funny bits the, in it. That the, the, the takes a lot from uh, from from black humor. Um, you said you had a, a, a lot to say about the obituary scene. Yes, because I thought that was... If I had to show someone a, a clip of something to explain, like, if, if someone was totally unfamiliar with the concept of dark humor... Mm-hmm. I would show them the obituary scene. The obituary scene is basically uh, Grant Mazzy, the main character, played by one of my new favorite actors, Stephen McHattie. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah, whatever. Um, he um, he he is as a as a radio station DJ uh, for a small town local radio station. He is having to. Um, read the obituaries and they happen to be the obituaries that are coming in f- 
that are happening while essentially in real time. The, yeah, the while this outbreak is happening right in the middle of it, and it's it's as you said over the top. It's uh, it's um, it's played extremely straight, very straight, and it's just him running through these obituaries that are like an entire family somehow. Uh, using using the director's words here uh, from a, from an interview I looked up, uh, suiciding into one another. <laughs> they use that term in the film. Yeah, they they do. It's yeah. it's su- they they say that uh, everyone who is stricken by this affliction is a victim, but they have to find another victim to suicide into, which I think is a wonderful sentence. Um, Man, you really dug deep on the research here. I did. I'm I, impressed. I really liked it. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was. Um, it, it's it's talking about entire families doing this, and it's just played so straight. I can't do it justice. No. without like I I could not try and replicate anything that they say. Just cause. no. I bet you could find the scene on YouTube if you just look up uh, Pawnee Pool obituaries. Obituaries. I'm yes. sure you could find it. And you could really, you could you could watch that without really spoiling anything from the movie. Uh, it, it's just kind, it's kind of a, it's just a good a good gag, really. Now I think that um, two two things I I, I have here on uh, on my notes. Can I say that? Is that breaking the fourth wall? No, no, good to for say it. that we wrote notes. Yeah, we took notes. Of yeah. course, we took notes. Yeah, I mean, we're we're professionals, not really. This would be garbage if I didn't take any notes. <laughs> I would have forgotten everything. Um, I think that uh, one uh, Stephen McCaddy, winner, best voice in the game. I I I love I love his radio voice. It's I quite wish, good. Yeah, I it's wish good. I had that radio voice. Um. And I also loved his performance. Uh, I thought it was extremely subtle. Uh, his performance because he'll uh, he does a lot with his expressions, which is great for a DJ. Because primarily through the first half of this movie, you are just looking at people talk to one another. Yeah, and it's still incredibly tense. And you're out. Uh, ha- Part of that is just watching him speak directly into the mic, yeah, and, and watching the girls in the booth react to it, yeah, and and he's he's giving he's telling so much of the story. He's having to put forth information in a radio format, you know, nothing too shocking, nothing that's going to incite a riot or anything. But uh, the he's actual telling the f- he's telling a lot of subtext with his with his facial. The first part of the ra- radio broadcast is very believable. Yes, it is. It is very much just uh, morning zoo radio type format. Uh, if if you live in a small town. Uh, you probably know of, if not know of, and avoid a radio show very similar to the one that they're putting on. Um, but, but another part of the subtlety is uh, they don't really bring it up much, but you can tell through his actions he is, uh, and and just a little bit of dialogue right in the beginning of the movie that uh, he's recently been uh, fired from a much larger radio station. And from his actions, you can tell that this is something he's settling into, but he's uncomfortable with. The it's almost t- like it's one of his first days there. What, like, yeah. It seems like it's his first week or it's pretty close. Yeah, he's still getting to, to know the, the two people he's working with, though they do seem 
somewhat friendly uh, just because he's a charismatic figure. And uh, he's, uh, you, you can tell by the way he acts, he's, uh, he's depressed, he's anxious, he's um, adjusting to a radio station that is smaller than he's used to in a town that's smaller than he's used to. And he has a very large uh, personality that they, they picked up. He's a bit of a rebel. He yes. wears a cowboy hat. <laughs> and, and scarves. Yes, he has a, a scarf, a bolo scarf, yes, a if bolo you will. That's uh, the only thing I can think of. I couldn't name it any better than that. He has a cowboy hat and a bolo scarf. Leather jacket and a bitchin' mustache. If you just saw him, you would think that this was based somewhere in the south, but it's not. It's set in Ontario, Canada. Yes. But uh, well, he is a very much a cowboy figure. Specifically, in case you're wondering, in Pontypool yes. in Ontario, yes. Canada. Hence the name. Yes. So I'm going to jump right in. Works? Yes. Ontario, Ontario is the province. Okay. There's like... Let's not. <laughs> Ontario is the province. <laughs> Pontypool is the town. Okay, fair enough. Um, so I'm just going to jump right into my overwhelming thing that I've just been dying to say. Okay. Um, the premise and the main plot point of the movie is that the there are specific words that are infecting people and hearing and understanding these words is what is sort of drawing out the evil. It's very important understanding. Understanding the just words. hearing it yes. stated is not enough. You have to understand it so deeply that you can't convey it. Now, as soon as this is explained or implied in the movie, the first thing I thought of was the shit episode of South Park where they say shit so many times it draws out an evil demon. <laughs> <laughs> that's that that's that's interesting. Um okay. I have it here on my notes highlighted with a big asterisk next to it. South Park oh, shit, shit episode. episode. I can I can see it. Interesting. I um I read it as being uh, a little bit more, um, once again, as a premise, a little bit more satirical. And and that's why I was getting to sure. with, the, with the 28 Days You thing. know what else is satirical is South Park. Yes. Um, <laughs> but with the, with the 28 Days thing um, was the premise of, you know, an emotional thing being somehow transmitted into a bloodborne infection took me out of it because it was played so straight. And this that didn't happen because it it's was It's almost like a wink nudge. Yeah, I it's it, it's something where where they accept wholeheartedly that it's ridiculous and they they just move right along. And uh, I, I kind of like that. And I kind of like that it wasn't certain words. They thought it was for a while, but it turned out it could be anything. I mean, they, they were... Yeah, cause, well, the original statement, the, they, they get... Um, shortly after the first uh, couple of, uh, of instances start to come in over... Uh, uh, mostly from their weatherman, 
Um, shortly after the first instances are reported, they uh, are interrupted. Someone hijacks their radio signal and they leave a message in French that says, uh, avoid talking to loved ones and babies and terms of endearment should be avoided and uh, any rhetorical uh, or conversational language. And uh, they, they try to pinpoint it, but you really, the, the spectrum of what everyone was, uh, was saying was uh, any sort of, they, they, they keep repeating words when they uh, are trying to understand them or when they understand them vividly. Uh, and that's the infected word that they got. For one character, it was kill. For another one, it was uh, missing. For another one, it was samples. Breathe. Breathe. Uh, blood was the very first one. Yep. The statement, who are you? The statement, um, what was it? Sydney is alive. Um, so Etc. It, 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 it could be anything. Um <laughs> There's a report that uh, one of them were that at one point the uh, mob of people was shouting, um, "Look out for U-boats! Look out for U-boats!" and something about Hitler. Yes. So it's uh, it's it's very free form, and I think I think that's a strength of the movie that they put forth a lot of uh, information that's not exactly true about the virus to illustrate how much they don't. No, even the, the doctor virus. who's supposedly an expert kind of is speculating. Yeah, like, quite a bit. Like he also gets infected and then uh, becomes a martyr. So yes. he he realizes that only the English language is infected, and he counters it. He keeps his sanity barely by speaking Armenian. After he figures out that he has become infected, yep. Um, the two main characters start speaking in very broken French to one another. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm sure to an actual French speaker, it would be very uh, uh, Canadian French, very very patois. <laughs> yeah, even then, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it was good. Even then, yeah. But uh, until until Sydney. Uh, the the leading female character gets drunk and then just says just starts talking just cuz and then she gets infected and then uh, gets cured now I did say something you had uh, said before of uh, you thought the first half of the movie was very strong Mm -hmm. and started to fall apart a little bit Um, I definitely I, I I would definitely say that the first half is definitely the strongest half. That is, uh, that's that's very true. It's pretty what, undeniable. What I really liked about it was they threw you a lot of curveballs. You really did not know what was going on. Most, yeah. Most zombie films are fairly blatant, and uh, you know if you have any amount of of knowledge about the genre, you are going to know immediately the signs of a zombie outbreak. This is played in the beginning very much like a psychological thriller. Like, you don't know if Grant's going insane or not. Um, and they throw you some 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 curveballs that, uh, that make you think that 
maybe that's the case. Yeah. Or maybe it's something a little bit more. Uh, it's written really well. It's written really well to begin with. It almost seemed to me like they had a lot of movie, a lot of script to power through. And after the first hour, they looked at the time and they were like, shit, we got to finish this somehow. <laughs> yeah, like, and then the whole world came crashing down at once. It was, yeah. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, you know, laud on it too bad, but, uh, I, I, you know, I, I still enjoyed it, you know, of course, but it just, it, it was kind of a stark contrast. The first two thirds of the movie versus the last third. It did, uh, it, things did once they got, uh, once they got underway, once they got going, things did, uh, get out of hand very fast. But I think that's, uh, I think that's a testament to the, uh, pacing in the first half. I mean, you don't even really know that you can call this a zombie movie unless you've had it spoiled for you uh, until the second half of the movie. You uh, yeah. you you can't you can't really say definitively what's going on. I actually started looking at this movie because uh, more than my affinity for zombie cinema, which uh, as I've stated, I like some of um I, I appreciate very good examples, but uh, don't love it across the board. Um, I had this movie recommended to me as a uh, Lovecraftian movie because I am a huge fan of Lovecraft. Um, very, uh, I, I, I could safely say one of my favorite writers, uh, especially when it comes to short stories. Um, but I, I I thought it was I thought it was interesting because as a fan of Lovecraftian horror, I uh, the first half of this movie really scratched an itch. It was very uh, you felt very confined by the set. You felt very small, very helpless, isolated, and uh, and there was something bigger going on outside, which is, you know, a main tenet of the cosmic horror genre. Um, and, uh, a- after, after watching it, you know, Lovecraft usually, uh, when he did a, uh, when he did a story, the, the main thing that, that the main driver of the terror in the story was fear of the unknown, specifically a large, cumbersome universe that doesn't particularly care or acknowledge uh, humankind and uh, the sanctity of human life. And that's uh, that's something I find very interesting, and that's something that I think the movie sets up. Uh, sets up kind of well, but zombies don't really ever fit in well with that. And I would, I would, uh, I, I was thinking about this. I was saying, could you really call this a Lovecraftian zombie movie? Um, and would it be the first? Immediately when I was asking would it be the first, I started thinking, well, maybe Body Snatchers? would qualify as right. that depending on how you how you define zombie it mm-hmm. was definitely cosmic horror yeah um 
I mean, this would be as much zombie as that because the people aren't really dead. Yeah. Funny thing, I, I, uh, doing research for this, uh, Tony Burgess did a, uh, panel. I cannot remember where the, the, uh, panel was taken, but the, um, he was on a panel about the movie at a film festival, I believe, where, uh, someone started referring heavily to the, uh, zombies as zombies. Mm -hmm. And, uh, (laughs) interestingly enough, Tony Burgess refused to refer to them as zombies. Yeah. He called them conversationalists. <laughs> <laughs> and he he described the affliction as being understanding something so deeply, and I'm paraphrasing here. I'm paraphrasing big time. I do not have the quote in front of me. Um, but he described it as understanding a word so deeply that it becomes all you can think about, and you aren't able to put it into words and you have to talk about it with someone and the communication will always break down because you can't put it into words and eventually in the final stages of the affliction you are only able to your only instinct is to try and eat your way into another person through their mouth gosh that just <laughs> and and just um, this it, it brings me to a, to another point about how it's great satire. Um, so the movie, and it's not brought up very often, but it's it's there is set around Valentine's Day, and uh, if you look at it, it is a movie where loved ones. Frequently, that that stated, especially in the obituaries thing, it's mostly families taking out themselves, mm-hmm. uh, suiciding into one another. Um, but I think it's great that there's a movie where loved ones can't communicate with each other to such a degree that they start destroying one another on Valentine's Day. I think that that is a beautiful satirical concept. <laughs> Once again, pitch black humor. Interesting thought. Um, but it it, uh, it comes through, especially on subsequent viewing. That's really digging deep. <laughs> I noticed something, and I'm curious if you caught this as well. Okay. Um, the doctor originally comes into the radio station... Uh, via what seems to be a storage room window, um, um, something to that effect. Something to that effect. What the same window that they're? It's like a storage clo- like a some kind of utility room. Anyway, yeah. He comes in through a window. It's not directly right in front of where the booth is. Um, no, it's actually upstairs from it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they. The two main characters and the doctor barricade themselves in a room um, towards the end of the movie. And as the doctor is basically rushing out to sacrifice himself to save the two main characters, he actually crawls back out through that same window. Yeah, I, I noticed that. It was something that on my first viewing, um, I... I had a question about. I was wondering if that was the same window. Oh, it definitely is. And, and I, I was looking for it this time just to be sure. And it's it's definitely 
it's definitely the same window. I thought that was a nice little book in there. Yeah, he he came in and left in exactly the same way. All right, so the next thing I think we have to absolutely address what the fuck was up with that final post credit scene? I I actually have it written as my last note. What the fuck last scene? Yeah. <laughs> you, so after the credits marked roll, with an interrobang. Yes. By the way, because interrobangs are underused. Yes. So <laughs> after the credits, we see the two main characters. Uh, inexplicably. <laughs> Sitting in an Asian sitting, style sitting in some kind of Asian restaurant or pleasure palace or God knows <laughs> what, uh, almost very Tarantino style. Yeah, like bond, Tarantino like style dress. Tarantino. Yeah, they're dressed <laughs> different than any of the motifs that we see in this movie. He, uh, they, they come up with different names for each other. Yeah, he, he calls uh, her Lisa the Killer. And she calls him Johnny, Johnny Dead, Dead Eyes. Eyes. Yes. Um, <laughs> which is a complete departure from anything in the movie. There yeah, is absolutely never brought up. <laughs> there is no setup to this whatsoever. Um, there, I mean, there could be, like, he refers to Lisa the killer. Yeah. And, and there's a big thing when, when she, she kills starts the drinking. Kid. There's actually a really human moment that I like from, from her character. And her actress doesn't really get a chance to shine all that much, especially not next to uh, Stephen McHattie, but there, uh, there's a very human moment where they start uh, when they lock themselves in the storage room, and uh, she starts writing her confessions yep. on the wall, and it's done in a really subtle way. The actress really sells it, yeah, um, and I like that. But Lisa the Killer, I, I could see that being. I mean, it, it, that's a the, vague reference to the movie. Vague, and her name's not Lisa. Yeah, she's never referred to as Lisa. Well, I think the whole thing is they're coming up with different names for themselves. But yeah, and the sh- where do they say that we're gonna go? Um, somewhere that doesn't exist yet. Somewhere that doesn't exist yet, and then she says, "Then what?" And he says something once again, paraphrasing. Um, going to. Steal cars, take the money, and knock boots in the free world, baby. Yeah. And, and while He's, that's and a then he glorious, aimed, badass line. Yeah, he brandishes a gun <laughs> at, at the camera, breaking the fourth wall entirely. Now, th- again, this is post-credits, so you can't really call this canon, I guess. I guess. It's kind of arbitrary anyway. Well, <laughs> well the only information I've been able to get about this scene, and... Um, it's uh, because I, <laughs> I was looking for the meaning of it. Like immediately, the first time I saw it, I started doing research, um, looking up synopsises, just trying to get a hold of stuff that I had maybe missed before. But primarily, trying to figure out what I had missed that would give that last scene context. God, anything, please. And uh, I found nothing. The only thing (laughs) I found is that the first cut of this film was more confusing, because that was actually the last scene of the movie that took place before the credits. God, I'm really glad they changed that. And yeah, it just confused uh, pre-screening audiences so much that they finally cut it out. The movie ending itself is uh, fairly satisfying. The um, I think uh, Grant, while they're locked in the storage closet, 
um, or storage room, equipment room, whatever. Um, Grant is, uh, well, Sydney, the uh, producer, try is. It comes up that she is infected. She starts repeating the word "kill." That's her infected word. And Grant uh, leans down to her, and he starts trying to figure out a way to reverse the effects. And what he comes up with, just kind of spur of the moment, is convincing her that kill doesn't mean kill. Kill means kiss. Yeah. And he's just keeps repeating. He says, kill is kiss. Kill is kiss. And um, it's... Uh, at, at the end of the movie, they because she she is out of it. She snaps out of it yeah. after she accepts that she should not understand the word kill. Kill is kiss, and that it, it throws her off. It yeah. breaks the it breaks how she's thinking. So they go back on the air, and they're trying to do a broadcast where they're trying to cure people by confusing. By by breaking that pattern by yeah. confusing them. So, so they, they start spouting. Absolute nonsense. Yeah, over just the radio. total non sequiturs uh, with words. They start saying "sample is yellow" and um, just completely getting increasingly more nonsensical as the friend, scene goes on. Friends are verbs. Yes, and ceiling is rhinoceros and stuff. And uh, it's it. The, it really feels like like in any other movie, this would be the moment where. They are proving victorious over the situation. Yes, and they've overcome the. Si- they've figured it out. They've conquered it. They are, you know, gonna finish up what they're doing. Open up the doors, and it's gonna be a, a battered world, but everything's gonna be okay. Yeah, the sun will come out, but in reality, <laughs> the, the greater context of the film seems to imply that everyone thought that they were absolutely insane on this radio broadcast. And they um, bombed the building. Yes, the, <laughs> the French-Canadian military massacres the entire town with bombs and machine guns, you, and the final scene of the movie is the radio station being bombed. Yeah. During the credits, we hear um, various, you know, what seems to be interviews with people after the crisis... Um, and some of which refer to this radio broadcast as complete nonsense by someone who was infected. Now, what we uh, what we also hear in the post credits thing it's it's just snippets of other uh, radio broadcasts where they allude to they they think the Pontypool was an isolated incident. They don't really know what happened, but then you start hearing people. Uh, Going back into that thing where they're repeating words, so it's implied that that it's still yeah. going, it's still spread. But what I uh, what I liked was um, at the very end because the our final scene is uh, Grant and Sydney in the sound booth, and uh, they there's a countdown going that's telling them to to turn off the broadcast and. Um, over a, a megaphone from a French military, um, or not French military, that's dumb, uh, Canadian French forces. Canadian military. Yes, and they're speaking in French. Once again, English is the only infected language. And um, they're giving them a countdown until they're going to drop a bomb on the building. And um, 
they uh, the the announcer says, "Yeah, three, two, one, or one, two, twelve, yeah, no, whatever, other way around." Anyway, um, countdown runs out. You hear a bomb blast, and the screen goes black, and we don't really know what happens uh, to Grant and Sydney. And then um, the credits roll. We hear radio snippets, and then that last weird scene happens. Yeah. And I think so. What what I'm reading into this? Yes, I want your white hot <laughs> take on this movie. So, right before the countdown starts. Grant goes into this uh, monologue that's very well worded and and I loved from a from a writing standpoint, um, where he's uh, he's he's saying you know it's it's not the end of the world it's just the end of the day I think that's not I think that's neat um, just as a sound bite but. Um, it doesn't really make sense. No, not at all. It, it almost it almost seems delusional. Um, but he states in that monologue, uh, a, a big part of it is, uh, we were never really making any sense. Like, even before this started, we were never making any sense. Yeah, it's a nice, and, poignant little moment. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of, kind of the cry. I think that's another... I think that's kind of the the point. No, not the point. That's kind of the climax of the satire in the yeah. movie. I think that I think that at the end of the movie, that's what you were taking away from it. Is the entire situation was absurd. If you're going with the whole Valentine's Day, people not being able to communicate with each other to the point where they destroy their loved ones, it's might be making a point. Uh, that it is absurd to try and communicate and expect to be understood. heard and understood fully. Kind of like the whole nature of language is is kind of a fabrication or nonsensical in the first place. Yes, because we contain multitudes and there's never really any way to hone in 100% on what someone is trying to communicate to you, making the process of communication and the study of language absurd. And I think that that might tie into that final scene, the post-credit sequence, being that it is a scene, a scene that is total, totally absurd, out of context, nonsensical, it looks good. <laughs> it does. It is extremely nice to look at. They have a, you know, a filter with some. Co- it gradually fades in from black and white to more color, look, and they have very, kind of a, a very Frank Miller, very yeah. Frank Miller, poppy Tarantino colors, yeah. like Sin City. Yeah, it's it's the nice. spirit, but we don't like to talk about the spirit. No, the spirit. No, <laughs> maybe we'll do that. We'll oh, do that. God. We should do that movie for. Do you want one to subject yourself to the spirit again? We can't do good movies all the time. That's true. That's true. I'm okay with doing the we, spirit again. We have no format for this. I haven't seen it. You've never seen the spirit? No. I thought I watched that with you. Like, nah, hell no. Years ago. No, I never wanted to watch that movie voluntarily. <laughs> the spirit. I saw bits and pieces, and Spirit's, it looks like complete shit. <laughs> Spirit's crazy. It's um, it it's based off of a uh, comic book that I am 
pretty sure is by the legendary Jack Kirby. I could be wrong with that. If we review it, I'm going to I'm going to brush up on the uh, on the actual comic book. I know that uh, the movie is a terrible representation of the comic book that everyone hated, and I know that I hated it surely on the grounds of it being a terrible movie. But um, I, I I might I might be forced to do a little bit of research into uh, into source material. I really want to jump around all over the genre spectrum for this project. Oh, absolutely! I was thinking we could do some kind of like '80s teen movie next. <laughs> all right. Well, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. There, there's there's still there's still some stuff to uh, yeah to I, cover. Um. Oh. So uh, one of the things I was saying with the Lovecraftian bit, mm-hmm. um, so I was thinking about this movie as a recommendation to a Lovecraftian uh, inclined person, if if that's someone's thing, because it's a really specific thing. Sure, and um, there's plenty out there. Well, you'd think as someone as someone who really likes uh, the stories of Lovecraft, there's plenty written, but when it comes to movies. No, I mean, there's plenty of people that oh, like it. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, but when it comes to movies, it's really hard to find an effectively creepy... Can you think of an uns- example of one? Hmm. Um, Mouth of Madness. Never heard of it. John Carpenter. It's... Uh, I know who he is. Right. Um... It's uh, it's not one of his like super lesser known movies like uh, I think I mean it's how right Ghost of Mars, uh, that's like his most unknown. Um, I mean plenty of people in in cult horror cinema circles know about it, but um, that's uh, that's probably one of his most uh, overlooked movies. Uh, Mouth of Madness is uh, based off of a Stephen King book. I believe. I'm not sure what the name of the original book is. Uh, I think it actually might be a short story. I will have to find out. But um, it's uh, it, it's it's about a writer who uh, starts to um, the things that he starts imagining in the world around him start to be true, and that's kind of a bad summary of that movie but um that that's a good one um and uh there there just there aren't a lot like that that's a good example of uh fairly lovecraftian cinema but there there really aren't a lot of um of good movies that that embody uh that that style that uh you know fear of a large and uncaring universe um i think that uh space balls uh probably not <laughs> Pro- um prove me wrong i mean no anyway i i mean i said i did say effectively creepy <laughs> while john candy and the dog makeup is somewhat unsettling we had, we had, we had a john candy moment today we did we, um, we played trivia before our uh our recording session here at a bar <laughs> yeah. and um 
I believe the question was, what was the movie where John Candy mud wrestles two women? Yes. Well, just women. I'm not sure if they gave a number. I think it was two. It might have been. Mud wrestles with two women. And uh, we were racking our brains thinking of John Candy movies. And I, I got in my head that it was Stripes. And uh, you tried to tell me I was wrong I, and I, put down a joke answer, but we put <laughs> we put down stripes and goddamn if we weren't right. It, it was it was absolutely right. I did not remember that scene from Stripes, and I'm wondering how it's not seared into my memory. I it just that's the th- it popped into my head from the from the one or two times I've ever seen that movie. There was some other bullshit in that trivia though. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, but yeah, the uh, the Lovecraftian thing. Sorry. It's. Uh, <laughs> I started thinking about could I recommend this to someone who is not, or someone who is looking for a good piece of Lovecraft. And your verdict is, I think tonally yes, but I'm not sure if I could call this Lovecraft because it's not really fear of the unknown that drives the terror. It's though they they do have to spend the movie figuring out what's going on and how mm-hmm. to fix it. Um, but it's in Lovecraft books is always a third party, and and that's fairly typical of the genre. It's always um, it's always something from outside um, that destroys the way that we can function. Um, Hence the whole name of being cosmic horror. Yes. And um, it is both cosmic and horror. Yes, and uh, I thought that the only way that you could slant this to be Lovecraftian, and it could be an interesting slant, is if the virus wasn't a virus, if it was a parasite. And there is some precedence for that. Uh, do- the doctor, Doctor Mendez, um, starts talking about. Uh, when he uh, when when he's explaining what's going on, he says that there is an infection in the English language, and it's jumping around desperately trying to keep its host alive. The only cure is more cowbell. Uh, yes, <laughs> these people have a fever, <laughs> and um, so it it could be it could be a parasite there that would at least make it a third party. Uh, something that's unknown. So I would say that this gets a tentative um, recommendation. You can't call it Lovecraftian, love, but but you love, might still like it. Yeah, I, I would I would say that that if you have someone who who is into this sort of thing, tell them it's Lovecraftian or slightly Lovecraftian, and uh, don't tell them it's a zombie movie. I I I am a firm believer. I didn't. I specifically did not tell you that it was a zombie movie. When I no, was and the only you, what's sad is when we were pulling it up on Netflix, is all the genres were like zombie, zombie, yeah, zombie because, movie, because they Canadian knew it would movie. Sell, yeah. If it was a zombie movie, because zombies are big right now, it, but it feels like a zombie movie. Yeah, but I mean, it ruins the. It I I think it ruins a lot of the a lot of the good pacing and ambiguity set up in the first act where yeah, you don't know if it's I know. just that's like I like I going insane. Like I touched on already, I felt like the more was revealed in this movie, the less the less interested I was by it. I think that's true of generally every horror movie. I th- yeah. I think that I think that for 
the most part, once you see the monster in a horror movie, it instantly... And there are a few exceptions to this. If, if I rack my brain, I can think of a few. But um, once you see the monster or the you know whatever is driving the terror and suspense in the movie, it instantly kind of becomes not not scary. Yeah, it, it, it's there. There's a there's. I think there's two ways to do it. There's the modern formula and there's the 80s formula. Okay. The modern formula, you have a lot of movie before things get explained. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this is kind of more of an exception because there was a lot of movie, but there was a lot of movie after things are explained. And generally, I think, at least in good horror movies that I like in the modern day, you kind of have a lot of movie before things get explained, once they get explained, it wraps up fairly quickly. The explanation is kind of the climax. Right. Now, in the 80s formula, which is completely different and possibly, (laughs) I think, is better, they throw the monster at you right away. Think it. Think uh, Friday the 13th. You get that monster experience right off the bat, and the whole fucking movie is spent being chased by that monster and it getting increasingly more terrifying. Now, Halloween, Mike Myers, not Mike Myers, he's Shrek, Michael Myers. <laughs> uh, you find out about him really early on and uh, he only gets more terrifying as the movie goes on. Now, and I don't I can't I'm not going to say one or the other is better, but it I, it's just kind of an interesting contrast to look at, you know, people generally call the 80s a good age for horror movies. Yeah, 80s depending and on 70s. Depending on how you feel about that kind of thing. I I personally love those classic horror movies, but you know, they're not for everyone. I I now I I have a theory about this. Um well not not so much theory. I, I have some observations about this cuz when I was telling you as soon as the monster is revealed, it kind of stops being terrifying. Sure. Um and uh, and I stand by that, even with uh, what you were calling the the eighties model, the the you know for for that specific thing. And, and I think it's important to uh, to to define some stuff when you're uh, when you're talking about what kind of what kind of movies most of those were, because you had like um, the first thing that came to mind for me was um, Hellraiser. Okay. Now, Hellraiser, the first time you see Pinhead and the other Cenobites... Who you call him Pinhead? <laughs> it's, um, it's fairly early in the movie. Um, I would say it's been a while since I've viewed that, but uh, I would say it's probably before the halfway mark. Um, and every, God, it has been a while. Yeah. Um, every... Uh, Every instance where you see the Cenobites, they are in full light. They are they're right up, they're in your face. But I think it's I think there's the initial shock value of seeing the Cenobites. The 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 first time people were seeing them they were like, Oh what the hell is that? Um but that would wear off. But after a while it wasn't that the Cenobites themselves and appearance were terrifying. 
it was the implications you kept learning about what they could do and how they uh, how how they operated what they did um, and the fact that you could never really escape them and I think those things were brought up as you went along in the movie and I think that kept the tension and that kept the the you know thrills going because it was it was not so much ooh be scared of this monster it was be scared of what this can do because yeah. it defies your understanding of it i was just going to say i think what ge- what keeps the quote unquote 80s formula going is you as the movie goes on you find out that the monster or you know malevolent entity can do more and more things as the movie progresses has more and more potential to fuck you up exactly and now i think um because michael myers is one of my you know favorite i don't think that's controversial statement um to say he's one of my favorite horror movie um icons um, and it's more because of the symbolism of uh, the mask erasing humanity. Um, I really like that. Um, but I, I do think it's important to note that those movies, uh, and by that I mean Halloween and Friday the 13th being the main... Uh, main uh, uh, most popular Standbys. movies from that genre. Yeah, while, while there are many, there's slasher, flick, slasher flicks. And slasher flicks kind of go with their own formula, separate from horror horror movies as a whole. They're, they're more, especially Friday the 13th. Um, are you saying that makes them of a... Scary to a lesser degree. I think it makes. I think a lot of people who were around in the eighties would disagree with you on that. I think it's scary in a different way. Michael Myers has universal, um, universal terrifying uh, qualities because the Love Guru was a terrible movie, and also true uh, on the uh, dealing with the other Michael Myers, the fictional Michael Myers. Sure. Um, he not Shrek. No, he represented um, like I like I said uh, a human who had become inhuman. They had given way to their baser instincts, yeah. and they had become at first more like an animal, and then they kept being compared to a force of nature. Yeah, well, when he was the little kid from the Tenacious D movie, <laughs> they showed him they showed him torturing all the animals. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's how you knew. And, I mean, a, a lot of people will tell you to uh, ignore the Rob Zombie films. Um, I won't. I, I, I will gladly ignore Halloween 2. Yeah, the first um, one was alright. The first one was okay. With, uh, with kid version of Jack Black. Yeah. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it goes into I wouldn't say that that, that movie goes into my main uh, canon for the series no um, but I, I do I do think that that it's a nice take on things yeah and the uh, anyway yeah I I think that um, the muting of Michael Myers human nature 
is something that's universally terrifying. It's that whole sure. thing, you know, what losing any sense of remorse or we, empathy. We could we could all become this sure. is is an implication. We could we could choose to give up uh, our humanity and um, and become a monster. Because God, he is and, terrifying. Yeah, and and so I, I think that uh, well, he's that, just a guy. Yeah, I think that saying that... Um, like, Freddy is a dream creation demon. <laughs> Michael Myers is just a dude. Freddy. Freddy. But, but yeah, going, going back to the, the Michael versus Jason thing, um, Jason, for me, was never really... Um, never really made the grade in that same way. He was still compared to a force of nature, uh, in some ways a lot more subtly, than in the uh, Halloween movies, but um, I don't know. There was there was too much of a supernatural element. Him becoming a force of nature didn't um, hold water once you figured out that he wasn't wholly human, right? And in, in his in his form, and and I think that that decreased. I think once you saw Jason. And once you saw that he couldn't be killed mm-hmm. easily, right. at least, um, he lost most of what made him terrifying. And um, I don't know. I, I was never, I was never as huge of a fan of the Friday the Thirteenth movies in that. Oh, I love them. In that horror way, I liked them as schlocky, you know, slasher flick gore porn sort of ways. I mean, Man. there there are a few things that compare with him uh, God bless. putting the girl in the sleeping bag and beating her against a tree. Oh, sure. That's, uh, that's, that's... Like Johnny Depp getting sucked into the bed and e- erupting a volcano of blood. Yeah, Fred, now, Freddy is a totally different thing. I think whether or not you think Freddy is scary ties in a lot with who you are as a person. I never. Whoa. I ne- not saying anything bad. I never personally found him to be all that terrifying. Mister High and Mighty over here. No, I'm <laughs> get off your high horse, there, bro. I'm. I'm. I'm saying that it. Uh, it. It. It says. It says something, especially in the. Okay, so. Here's my only diatribe on, the. Nightmare on Elm Street movies. The, the last one, anyway. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not even getting into that Silver Dunes, Michael Bay-involved train wreck. No, that, no, no, I mean the la- your last diatribe, because there have already been a few. Yeah, yeah, well, I do that. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, the first one posed a really cool concept. You can't sleep. There's someone in your dreams who's after you. If you die in the dream, you die in real life. One, two. Yeah. Freddy's watching you. And Freddy's coming. For Freddy's you. coming for you. It's been a it's Three, been a four, hot minute. Lock the door, etc. Um, and and that's that's Five, a scary six. concept. The Pick first time. That's a scary concept. The first time you uh, see it. The first time you hear about it. Um, for me, it was kind of ruined because I grew up in the generation whose parents had all grown up with the first Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And um, it was, uh, you know, the the concept was instilled in me, and by the time I actually saw it, it wasn't 
that scary. Not saying that it wasn't in the beginning, but you know, it's it's something that's been done a lot, parodied a lot. I think it's lost a lot of its punch. If it still scares you at this point, I think that says a lot about what your brand of horror is. Sure. Um, and there's there, there's nothing wrong with it. I always thought Freddy was kind of goofy. Now here's the controversial statement especially amongst friend, fans of the series, I think that the best ideas in all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies came from Nightmare on Elm Street 2, mm. which is a movie that most people don't even consider to be canon. It's horrible. <laughs> it's, okay. It's a steaming pile of uh, garbage. Okay. I will not deny that the movie has problems. It has deep, deep problems. Where are you going with this? But what I thought was really interesting, I found a kernel of something really, truly terrifying in Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Yeah, the plot and the script <laughs> and the fact that it got green-lighted, that is really the, terrifying. The main character is channeling Freddy to bring him into our world. Now that is a flimsy premise at best. It fucks with how okay. Freddy can actually work. Sure. But here's the thing. He keeps doing and a lot of this could be incidental. A lot of this was probably incidental, but but follow me down the rabbit hole a little bit here. He keeps doing things that are outside of his nature that he has no control over mm -hmm. while he's sleeping he is not only being terrorized but he is acting Freddy is acting through him he there there are things where he's killing people mm -hmm. And that's a great subversion. That that is a great that that is something that's that's awesome because before it was a guy was chasing you. Now it's a guy is chasing you. You're also being forced by him to do his bidding. And I think that that's really cool. I think that um, losing control of yourself is a very universal horror theme. Um, and this movie, Pontypool. Full circle, yes, exemplifies that. Yes, and um, it's it, it's cool. And there's also this is the part that's probably very incidental. In Nightmare on Elm Street two, there is a um, a lot of people joke that the main character acts really gay. Okay, with his best friend. All right, um, and having seen the movie. Yeah, I, I can I can totally I can totally understand it, and sure. uh, I'm not sure if it was intentional. You know, things were just a little bit more androgynous by default in the '80s. Um, but uh, it there's a part that that's kind of a uh, it's kind of like Clive Barker's Nightbreed, another famously. Horribly received movie that uh, that generally gets terrible reviews, um, but actually has a certain element of um, if you looked at it from a 
gay point of view, from a coming out point of view, uh-huh. um, it can be horrifying to be doing things that you don't fully understand. Oh my god. It's more prevalent in, li- in Nightbreed. Like I said, in... In, <laughs> in, in Nightmare on Elm Street 2, it's probably incidental. In Nightmare on Elm Street 2, it's probably incidental. I did not pick up on where you were going with that but, until you got there. But in Nightbreed, in Nightbreed, another movie that is terribly reviewed, terribly oh, received. Jesus Christ. It is it it is a movie, it is a horror movie, well a horror themed movie that is literally by the author about coming out. It's crazy. We should watch Nightbreed one day. Okay. Uh, so you're getting at this. Nightmare on Elm Street two. The main characters acting out and being controlled by Freddy. Is a metaphor for his potential uh, closeted gayness. Not necessarily. I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the two things are strictly connected. Once again, one of them is the terrifying nature <laughs> of acting in a way that you don't understand uh-huh. that, that you can't control and the other one is killing people <laughs> <laughs> no. the so so the the main the there, there are two separate ideas that uh-huh. i think uh were were kernels of of goodness about that movie truly uh and one of them was a truly terrifying concept the the not being able to control what uh, you're doing mm-hmm. and and how and the fact that actions that he did while not in control were having consequences in his life and they were driving him insane um, now the gay subtext I'm saying was probably a totally separate thing mm-hmm. I'm saying if they had embraced that or if they had even known it was going on they could have potentially made it into a really cool Concept there, sure. there can there can be, there can be connection. There can be metaphor there if it was handled properly. Now it's not. Also, something that's good about Nightmare on Elm Street too, and the last thing I'll one say of the about many it, things. Last thing I'll say about it: the main character, I think, is one of the best characters in the series. Okay. And I say that unreservedly. I think his actor is great. I think when it comes to an intense performance, he, you know, uh, obvious comparison, you know, that that you kind of can't live down. I think when it comes to an intense performance, uh, he outdid Depp in the first movie. Now, Depp in the first movie... Was not that great. He had a (laughs) kind of a bit part. Yeah. He, so he, I mean, he that's not a really a comparison. Yeah, but but I'm I'm saying that I'm saying that Depp gets a lot of credit for that. Where, Does he? Yeah. By who? Well, people who follow Johnny Depp's career, which is a lot of people. I guess. I mean, it it gets credit the same way Twenty One Jump Street gets credit, the same way that Leonardo DiCaprio fans really like Gilbert Grape. It's because it's his no Gilbert first. Grape is a fucking bang up movie. Yes, bro. and also Johnny Depp and Gilbert Grape. Um, 
but but they're 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 fantastic movies that um the the you know the actors while Gilbert Grape was great like 21 Jump Street and Nightmare on Elm Street they get the credit as being their first and people like to romanticize the roles that were played as being somehow you know awesome um <laughs> They they weren't Johnny Depp's role in uh, in Nightmare on Elm Street one didn't provide him a lot of uh, didn't provide him a lot of of leeway to be his, that great. his natural acting ability didn't have a chance to shine through in that one exactly the the part wasn't you know wasn't written specifically for him like a bunch of other stuff has been and you know it's just it's not the best example of his acting abilities but if you want to talk about good actors in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Um, I think Nightmare on Elm Street 2, the main character, whose name I'm drawing a blank on, is actually one of the best. Like, he gives an intense performance. He sells what is... <laughs> he sells what is a very flimsy premise as being pretty believable on his end. Um, like, like you, you, get a, you get a sense that he is genuinely distressed, going insane, that he's... You know, on the verge of being unable to function mentally, and all um, because of the gayness. <laughs> but, but yeah, you, uh, you, I, I think, I think it's a great role. I think he did it really well. I think that that movie doesn't get enough credit, surely because it is. Uh, I mean, it doesn't get enough credit for the good ideas it had because it was overall. Horrible. Right. <laughs> I'm sure the same could be said about almost every bad movie. Yeah. There, there, there are usually good ideas somewhere in, in most bad movies. You, uh, it is sometimes just very difficult to, to find them. But I, I think that was an interesting one that I wish more of the Nightmare movies had, uh, had gone into. Gosh, the 80s were an intolerant time. <laughs> All right. So, what else do we have about Pontypool? <laughs> we we were talking about Pontypool. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that movie is cool. I liked it overall. Uh, I didn't necessarily feel as though it was as strong at the end, but you know what? Good movie. Watch it. I, I give would it, give it a whirl. It's only about ninety minutes long. It's a. I would I would definitely give it a view. Uh, like I said, if you like low-budget stuff, I think that this is one of the most creative uses of a shoestring budget. Oh, sure. I've ever seen. The whole thing is shot on yeah. four sets. One thing I will say about Pontypool, the camera angles and the framing... With only five characters. Yeah, the, the camera <laughs> angles and the framing and the general production quality of it... Done quite well. Top notch. Yeah, it's I mean, really good. They, they, whoever d- directed their, you know, their art, their art was 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 really doing a good job. They were yes. really having a good day. Absolutely. Um, the the framing of the shots, the close ups, you know, all of the the perspectives that we get on the sets are all are all quite well done. Yes, for they, a movie that otherwise, you know, it's not like. It's not a huge budget movie. It doesn't have, you know, outstanding production qualities in that many ways. Mm-hmm. But you know, the 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 shooting of it and the actual photography of it is done done really bang up. 
Yes. It was a bang up job. Gotta I, say that. I, I would agree. Um and and I like I, I know they, they kinda took you out of it a little bit, but I like the uh, I like the detours that it makes. Um, the little moments. There's a uh, there's a great small moment after um, after uh, Grant talks to the the weatherman who's who's reporting at like the uh, the climax of his role yep. in the movie um, where uh, where he's in the in the grain silo with one of the uh, the conversationalists mm-hmm. and uh, it, it is it's something that for both the viewer and for Grant and the other characters in the radio, uh, studio um, is kind of the the pivotal 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 the pivotal uh, this is happening this is insane we have to cope with it and there's there's a great moment where uh, Grant maybe starts hearing voices it's oh, never sure. really and he starts looking under his desk he, he gets a little bit he gets a little bit uh Seems to be infected there for just a second. Yeah, it it, it looks he like that, to, or either that, or he starts to kind of lose his mind a little bit. I actually yeah. forgot about that. Yeah, and it's easy to forget about it. So I thought it's a detour. I, it doesn't take that long, that, and then and then he flips out. You know what? Though supporting cast, I felt like to to flip the script. You said you really liked that. I felt like there was no payoff to that. Well, okay, so so here's here's my payoff. With it, here's what I got out of that scene, was that he has just heard possibly the most insane, hard to believe thing he has ever had to oh, come sure. to grips with in his life. You're reporting on the apocalypse without even yeah, seeing it. Yeah, and and he's just uh, he's just he's he's locked in the booth and he's having to to decide whether or not he's going to believe this and he's he has like what i view as a little mental lapse and immediately after he he uh he starts talking to his his producer sydney um and he uh he he starts he he walks out of the booth and she says you know i can't have dead air and he goes to to walk outside, which is something they've told him not to do. Everyone's under quarantine. Um, he goes to walk outside, and he just has like this mini breakdown where he starts telling them where they're they're trying to keep him from going outside, and he says, you know, I don't believe he, it. He's, he's like, you guys are fucking with he, me. He says, you're fucking with me. Fuck you. And he says, I need to see something solid. I need to be sure I, I need to see that what's happening to me is happening all around no he says I need to see that there's more happening than what's happening to me oh yeah it's a need to get outside of himself because going in he realized that he was going to lose it yeah and and I think that that's just it was done in an over-the-top way. It was done in a way that you wouldn't see. I mean, in, in 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 real life, outside of extreme situations, which that is. Yeah, but I th- also think that it's one of the like greatest 
reactions. It's really well acted. It's it's a little bit over the top, but it, overall, I think it's pretty yeah. pretty well acted. Yeah, and I think it's just a great reaction to to having to cope with something that huge and incomprehensible. Yeah. And um, I, I liked it. I think I think that for me. That had payoff uh, from a character standpoint, from an emotional standpoint. Um, I, I was and and uh, and there are a lot of detours like that. There are little asides that honestly start to remind me of like uh, David Lynch. Yeah, I was, um, was going to bring up Lynch, where where things just get really like borderline surreal, and they never go too far into that. You're not going to get yeah. You know, full eraser head, lost Bro, highway quality. Are we you... should do lost highway for the podcast. I am so. Okay Can with we that. please? Yes. Not absolutely. soon, but absolutely, but sort of soon. Yes. We should do lost highway. We should. That movie fucking rules. I agree. We also um, need to do a movie that you don't like that I like. <laughs> um, we 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 can we can think about that in a minute. Sure. Um, but but yeah, I, I think that the asides enrich the movie. I think that they give it a lot of personality that other horror productions don't have. I think that this is a patentedly unique horror movie, and that's saying a lot because it's in a genre. Horror in itself seems to be nowadays a genre where there's a lot of box ticking. And it, it's getting better. There have been some great horror releases. Uh, I haven't seen The Witch yet. I wanted to. Uh, it's still on the list. I did see the Babadook finally. Oh, how was that? Oh God, it's great. Really? Yeah, and and this this indie horror scene really seems to be where we're we're getting out of the box ticking that has been fairly common since the uh, since the nineties and early two thousands, where it's like you know okay you know here's here's the monster uh, you know and and it. Like, like, I see it all the time. I think uh, for how much critical acclaim, which I don't understand because I don't, I don't personally like these movies, but uh, for how much critical acclaim it got, uh, I see Insidious, the Insidious franchise as being a very ticking the box kind of I still haven't seen. Franchise. I haven't seen either of those either. Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's, very, it's very much here's... I know a lot of people that really like the first one. I do. I I know a ton of people who do. I don't get it. I thought it was uh, boring, formulaic. It was. It was very formulaic. It had some interesting visuals, and to an audience that doesn't view, to an audience that doesn't seek out horror movies, mm-hmm. to to a oh sure I guess to, so. to an audience that was just you know going to the movies to see that because that was what was out at the time sure. and someone had recommended it. Yeah. Um, I, I can see how it would have been, you know, it, it would have it would have scratched that itch. Um, but as like an innovative horror movie, as something that I would give a good critical um, critical review to. A good gore score. Yeah. I, I wouldn't I I would not rate it highly. It's it's not it's not the most um, it's not the most egregious example of box ticking, but I think it is. Uh, I think it is one. I think it's very indicative of what AAA horror titles 
uh, have become. And uh, like I said, we're getting out of it with the indie scene. They're proving that there's a market for smart horror movies that that embrace. Yeah, it, some... need, it needs to be a comeback because yeah, I've I mean, just been I've just been down on horror movies for the past god ten years just yeah. because they've been overall so shit. Yeah, I mean they're they're. All, all the good releases, for the most part, are, are indie releases, and uh, and we haven't had a good AAA horror director. Like we, our, was, gen- our generation. What was the last good big budget horror movie? Last good big budget horror movie that I saw was. Slither. <laughs> you could not describe that as having a large budget <laughs> or as good. I I love Slither it's as not a good. as a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's hilarious. Instead of sitting here trying to recall um, a movie, I think I think uh, horror movies are headed in a good direction. You know what? Yes. You know what? I my I, I feel like this this movie is a better. It takes. A cue from another horror movie from around the same era, and I want you to bear with me here. I don't know if you ever saw it, but um, White Noise. I did see White Noise not, a very long time sure, ago. Sure. Not a great movie. No. Similar did. Similar in premise to this, though, where there is an infection passing between people in a bit of a um, non- unexpected way a way that you is not typical for horror movies i think that movie it's going over electrical signals or cell phone signals something like that yeah it, it, but it's that being movie, transmitted in static sure that movie isn't very good no um, question was that was that did that movie have Kiefer sutherland in it or was that um, no that was mirrors yes that which was, i never saw it was bad no the korean white, version was pretty good white noise had you no, like gore white noise had nobody in it yeah. uh, that i remember but um that movie had an interesting premise that was really my only basis for seeing it but it was not executed very well um i feel like this takes a similar ish premise and executes it much much better I I kept getting reminded of that movie during this movie, and I, I feel like it's a it's kind of a better you know it's not really shot the same, it's not really paced the same, but the premise you can kind of you know take it in a similar way, and uh, I feel like it it handles it quite a bit better. Yes, I um yeah I I can get what you're saying with the with the uh, the the premise of having a. Uh, an infected message, possibly. Yeah. Um, something that, that I just... I, I kind of made a note of. Um, and and I, it's a little out of left field. I thought that the... Um, the premise of having an infected piece of language... Um seemed it, it almost seemed odd that it was a that it was a plot that was coming out of a western horror movie it, it's generally I, I thought about it the very first time I watched it I said this sounds 
like something that that I would generally get in a Japanese. horror anime. Yeah, yeah, something something Japanese, possibly uh, Korean. Um, but very rarely do Western movies uh, ever go that far. Almost makes you wonder if this was lifted from. Well, no, you said it's based on a book, right? Yes. Pool Changes Everything by Tony Burgess is the name of the book. I haven't read it yet. I so really Tony Burgess is the person who wrote the book and the script. Yes, he, he adapted it himself. Yep. Interesting. Yep. Um, well, we, we, we may have to give that a read and review the book. Yeah, we can do book reviews. Why not? We can do anything. Fucking whatever. That's the, that's the, that's the whole thing. Yeah. Here. We can do absolutely anything. We, we don't even have a world. title for this podcast yet. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we never will. World, world is our oyster. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think that, uh, think that doing a book review is not totally out of the, uh, out of the question. Any Just, closing, uh, any closing thoughts on Pontypool? We need to put a bow on this one. Um, I would say definitely watch it if you haven't. Um, I find it a little bit sad from a, from a purist standpoint that uh, that if you're getting to this point in the podcast that you have uh, listened to us explain everything about it and, and if you haven't watched it because it is such a good movie to try and piece together oh as as you're going into it but I would still say even how if, many film reviews have you watched of movies that you don't know anything about haven't seen plenty but I usually I I, I respect spoilers when it comes to uh, suspense mystery and horror, sure, because they are genres that directly um, are impacted by your knowledge of the subject. Um, I, I would say, I would say, though, if you're interested by the concept, if you want to see something that has great examples of black pitch black humor, uh, this is a fantastic example of that. It's genuinely tense. It's amazing to see what they can do on a small independent budget. Um, and yeah. I, I can't recommend it more highly. Perfect. I give it a 48 out of 64. I do not believe in numerical ratings. I don't either. Cool. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, do, do we, do we have a, do we have a plan for, for a sign off on uh, this yet? This has been a podcast. My name is Tyler. My name is Chris. Uh, watch the film it was pretty good and uh yeah see you later <laughs>